When Trish Clark slept at a convent in Rome, she discovered that guest houses run by religious orders can be an ideal way to see Europe, like the one right in the middle of Florence. This lovely, lovely monastery run by two very beautiful oblate sisters. All the rooms are large, nicely furnished. It's in a terrific location, just, you know, 100 yards from the Duomo. You couldn't be in a better area. But for a little more action at night, the frontman for the rock band, The Long Winters, tells us how he and his bandmates tour Europe. We've had the most amazing times in Berlin over the years, so much so that we thought maybe we should move there. And learn about America's new marine sanctuaries in the middle of the Pacific. Think of it. President Obama has protected more of the Earth's surface than anybody in history. That is big stuff. From convents to rock stars and the middle of the sea, Explore the world with us in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. The largest protected area on Earth is now in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear why marine biologists are celebrating this as a major breakthrough and why it really matters to everyone. We'll also hear how a band that's the darling of indie rock bands makes a fast-paced concert tour of Europe work for them without breaking up the band. But if you prefer quieter accommodations, the author of The Good Night and God Bless Guidebooks joins us now to take your calls at 877-333-RICK. Trish Clark has discovered that booking a room at a convent or monastery in Italy or in many parts of the world might just be the answer for finding comfort on a budget in some of the most prime locations. Trish, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Rick. Now, Trish, tell us how you got into finding and listing monasteries and convents for travelers. Well, it happened some decades ago, actually, and I was at the end of a working holiday in London, and I decided to spend a week in Rome on my way back home to Australia. I planned to to really let my hair down, to have lots of fun, go out at night, see all the sights. But when I arrived at the hostel that I'd planned to stay in, much to my disappointment, I was told that they were completely booked out. However, I think fearing that I was about to burst into a flood of tears, the manager told me not to worry and that he would ring the convent up the road. Well, Rick, I can tell you, I was very worried because I hadn't long left school and having been taught by nuns, the last thing I wanted to do was to spend any part of my holiday with them. However, I didn't have any money and so therefore I I couldn't afford a hotel, so I had no choice at all and I soon found myself wandering up the Via Sistina, wandering up the hill to this wretched convent and I was imagining all sorts of terrible things, that there were going to be rigid rules, that I'd have to be up at six in the morning to attend Mass and uh, I'd forgotten the words to grace before meals years ago, so I was very concerned when I found myself at the front door. Anyway, I took a couple of deep breaths and pressed the buzzer, and uh, before I could change my mind, the door sprung open, and I ventured inside, and I noticed that I was in a very airy, marble-tiled foyer, black and white tiles on the floor, and there was a lovely, wide, grand marble staircase leading upstairs, And on the left-hand side was a reception area. And I remember seeing a very, very large typewriter behind which sat a very, very old nun. And thank goodness she smiled. And uh, I started to feel better immediately. Now, she didn't speak a word of English and I didn't speak a word of Italian, of course, but we managed and it wasn't long before I had the key to my room in my pocket. So I walked up the stairs, got to my room, opened the door, and again I, I was pleasantly surprised. I mean, the room was only small, but it seemed to have everything I needed, and it was absolutely spotlessly clean. And uh, the next morning I, I was woken by the sound of the most beautiful music, and I realized that it was coming from the chapel and the nuns were singing hymns during morning mass. It was really strange. I found myself quite enjoying this experience. And uh, at the end of the week, I was really sorry to leave. But I found myself seeking out these places whenever I traveled overseas. (laughs) Now, when you're thinking about uh, various destinations around Rome, first of all, when you want to go to a convent or a monastery, do you need to be a Christian? Or if you're not a Christian, are you going to feel awkward? No. No No one ever asks. No one asks what religion you are. I mean... You're just somebody who wants a room for the night and they're offering the hospitality and you pay the money and okay. everyone's happy. And what what sort of restrictions or limits or concerns are there beyond just the normal etiquette and rules when you're staying in a hotel? 
Well, approach it as though you're staying in someone's home, then you couldn't go wrong. Right. It's not like a... Don't treat it like a hotel. It's not a hotel, and it's, it's also not church camp either. No, just be respectful. Be respectful. All right. Now, if you want to embrace the culture, what are some examples in Italy where if you wanted to worship with the order that's there, are you welcome to... I know a lot of these places have a beautiful chapel built right into the accommodations. Yes, they all do, Rick. I've never been to a convent guest house where there hasn't been a a chapel handy, and guests are very welcome to join in the church services or or pray with the nuns. Uh Uh, There's no problem at all, but again, it's optional, and there's no pressure put on anybody to do so. Trish, if you're thinking about a great experience in the sense of a convent or a monastery in Florence, what is one that comes to mind? Well, there's a lovely, lovely monastery run by two very beautiful oblate sisters. It's called the Sanctuary B&B. The accommodation is terrific. All the rooms are large, nicely furnished, ensuite bathrooms. It's in a terrific location in the Borgo Pinti, and just, you know, 100 yards from the Duomo. You couldn't be in a better area. And the nuns are just so incredibly friendly, and they, they really take their hospitality duty seriously, and they make sure that all the guests are comfortable. But the other good thing about this place is that it's got the most amazing, spacious garden at the back quite unusual, I think, for something so close to the centre of of a major town. But it's a lovely convent, and the sisters also have a a similar convent in Sorrento down in Campania. I remember I booked in here very late one night, and uh, the next morning when I woke up, I opened the double doors onto the balcony, and I just couldn't believe what Mm. I was looking at. Mount Vesuvius was just over the way. It was an incredible sight. Trish, you talked about they take their tradition of hospitality seriously, but this modern day and age, they also are business people and they have high expenses and they have to pay their rent. Uh, So they're not cheap accommodations, but you could say they're good value accommodations. What would you expect to spend for two people with bed and breakfast in a place like these that you're mentioning? Well, in a convent run by nuns where breakfast is served and there are ensuite bathrooms included, I would think it would work out at about 80 euro for two people mm-hmm. for one room. Now, the nice thing about that is that's what you'd pay for a very stripped-down, basic, humble guest house or one-star hotel. But what you're likely to find in a convent is quite luxurious, if monastic, setting. Yes, that's right. And and they're all different. There is a very upmarket convent in Rome, which you may know, called the Casa di Santa Brigitta. It's in a very beautiful piazza right next to the French embassy. This is probably the most expensive convent in Rome. And when I last checked, I think it was getting up towards 200 euro per night. But the nuns, the nuns are just wonderful and they wait on the tables. They serve breakfast, lunch and dinner. Trish Clark is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. Her website is goodnightandgodbless.com and it includes convent and monastery guesthouse listings for Europe, Australia and many other locales. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Bill joins us now on the phone from Livermore, California. Hi, Bill. Hi, Rick, and hi, Trish. I I stayed in uh, the Casa Santa Francesca Romana in um, Rome, which is over in the Testevere area. Mm. And uh, it's been several years now with my whole family. And I've kind of kept track. Then they didn't have a website because it was over 10 years ago, but now they have a website. They've added... Wi-Fi and televisions and air conditioning, none of which we had then, but it was just very clean, nice accommodations in a great location. We were able to you know, get over to the forum and walk places without any trouble, and I thought it was a really good value. I would never, it's not like a youth hostel, it's not a real budget thing, although even some youth hostels aren't budget anymore, but mm-hmm. it was just a fantastic place. And yeah. Bill, was it family friendly, would you say? Absolutely. In fact, we had actually scheduled two rooms, and when we got there, each of our rooms had four beds, and there were my wife and my two sons, and so I actually went down and talked to them. I didn't really need two rooms, so mm-hmm. we all shared a room, And but it was very big and uh, lots of room and, of course, great views out into the old part of town there in the mm-hmm. Testavera. Trastevere is great, and it's nice yeah, to have a yeah. nice uh, a convent as a home base in Trastevere. Talk about a Roman experience. Absolutely, absolutely. And I did have a question for Trish. Yeah. I would like to know, I just got back from two months mostly in Italy just last week, and I was staying near Cortona in a farmhouse, and we usually do self-catering. But I noticed that in Cortona there's like three convents, and I uh, was wondering... 
uh, is it possible to stay more than a few nights in these convents, and can you actually book multiple rooms for friends and so forth? Bill, thank you for that, and I'm sure there would be absolutely no problems. In fact, I think they'd be quite delighted to hear that you wanted to book friends in for more than a few mm-hmm. nights. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Hey, you know, Bill, you mentioned Cortona, and I am really so thankful for the convents that are available in Cortona for travelers. Trish, maybe you can remember the one. It's just like a 10-minute walk downhill from the main square, and it's in beautifully set garden, and it's just a, it's sort of a palatial building, easy parking, very friendly, and very inexpensive, right there at the base of Cortona. Yes, I can't think of the name of it, but it's in the book. Yeah, I, I saw it in your book, and I just thought, that is a great place. And uh, but, but the point is, all over Italy, you can find these kind of convents, Bill. So thanks for your call. Okay, thank you very much, Rick. Bye. Bye-bye. Alice is on the phone from Carlsbad, California. Hi, Rick and Trish. Um, Hello, I just wanted to tell you about a convent we stayed in. I can't remember the name of it, but it was in Shefalu in Sicily. Oh, and nice. uh, it was fabulous. It was right on the bay. Oh. And there was a little balcony thing that you could go up to and look out on at night. The rooms were just plain and simple, two twin beds, but it had its own bathroom. The nuns were very cute and friendly and funny, and uh, we loved it. Yeah, because Cefalu is my favorite city in Sicily, and right on the beach with all those colorful boats there, what a delightful uh, situation for you. It was perfect. The only problem was when we were there, one of the nuns died, so then then it was kind of sad. (laughs) Actually, I think the details to that convent are on the Good Night and God Bless website. I think it's just called the Convent of Cefalu, Alice. Uh Oh, okay. Very good. Alice, have you had any more experiences in convents elsewhere? Is that your one time sleeping in a no, convent? No, it's my one time, but I would definitely do it again. In fact, I think they had a sister convent in uh, Palermo. When I saw it, I thought, well, gee, you know, hmm. next time I go to Palermo, I'd stay there. In Palermo? Yeah. All right. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. All right, Alice. Well, thanks for your call. Okay, thank you. Well, you bet. Bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Trish Clark, and her book is Good Night and God Bless. Now, are most of the convents and monasteries offering just single beds, or would they, like hotels, offer double beds as well? (laughs) If you ask for a single room, then you'll get a single bed, but they're much more with it these days than they were 100 years ago. And (laughs) I think you'll find that that you could even avail yourself of a double bed if you asked for one. People can sleep uh, together in in a convent. I guess that's part of the reality is they just need to rent out those rooms to pay the rent. There's a lot of big buildings that are hard to keep up, and they may have been built in a time when there were more pilgrims coming to town or whatever, but now they've got a lot of empty rooms and a lot of expenses, and there's a lot of demand among travelers to find an affordable option to fancy hotels. That's right, Rick. Trish Clark, author of Good Night and God Bless. God bless you for putting together Good Night and God Bless. Thanks so much, Trish. (laughs) Thank you, Rick. The lead singer and guitarist of the rock band Long Winters also gets to plan the logistics of their European concert tours. Up next, John Roderick takes us backstage to hear what concert touring is like in Europe. And later, find out why even the most remote reaches of the ocean need our help and what marine biologists say we still need to do to protect embattled species, including you and me. It's Travel with Rick Steves. You know what a challenge it can be to organize a family vacation overseas. Now, imagine what the manager of a rock band has to do to keep everybody and their gear in shape as they travel from town to town for their next gig. John Roderick is lead singer and guitarist for an American indie rock band called The Long Winters. He also organizes the band's travels to as many as 150 concerts a year. 
to cities scattered all across Europe and North America. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves for a backstage peek at traveling with the band. John, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. So this must be so interesting for you as the organizer in your band to put these tours together. Tell me what a big tour would be for you in Europe. Well, when we first started playing in Europe, we were really breaking ourselves there. We didn't have the advantage of being a a super big rock band that had videos on MTV. We had to go and pioneer those territories for ourselves. So build an audience by playing well. Yeah. We had a record that came out on a small label in Europe, and it got really great reviews. Right. But good reviews aren't... It doesn't fill a stadium. It really doesn't. So it's hard work to create a buzz from a grassroots kind of way. It really is. So you're out there going from city to city. On a big tour in Europe, how many cities would you visit in how many days? You know, we'd often go for 40 days and play 35 shows. So every day, it's like, I've done that on lecture tours, and I've got no setup, really, and it's not anywhere near as exhausting as performing on stage, I would think. So almost every day, you're changing hotels, Mm -hmm. you're packing up, you're driving or taking the train or whatever, setting up, sound check, playing your heart out, partying afterwards, trying to keep the band together. As the leader of the band, were you mothering them to get their sleep and be healthy tomorrow? I was, because... As a cost-saving measure initially, and then increasingly as an experiential strategy, I never would hire somebody to babysit us. Right. I always wanted to do it ourselves. Right. And so we had all the additional work of talking to the venue people, you know, meeting and working with everybody and loading our own stuff. After 30 concerts in 40 days, is the band tighter or is the band just more wasted? The music, I think, just improves, Hmm. but the tensions can wear, you know. Living in tight quarters, yeah, uh, yeah, because there's there's no way around that. As the organizer, you have the opportunity to opt for the standard tour package, and there's companies, I understand, that'll take a rock band or any musical group and do all the work for them, or you opted for the the do-it-yourself independent approach. Yeah. What's the pros and cons? The cons are that you have probably twice the work, or it feels like you have twice the work. Mm -hmm. Because when you pull into the outskirts of a European town, as you know, there's generally no highway spur that runs right into the center. And so you're deposited on a ring road somewhere, and you have to find your way to some club in the center of Sertogenbosch that doesn't have... Sertogenbosch. (laughs) Oh, that is. The the public transportation in Sertogenbosch, yeah. So you're, you're stranded on the street corner with your gear? Yeah, and when we initially were touring, it was pre-GPS, and so right. we're looking at maps and trying to find, and a lot of one-way streets in, in European towns. So you're banned on the road. How much gear do you have? Can you fit it all in a, in a minibus? It's a sprinter van, Yeah, um, and right. we're all in there, and our gear is there too. Every reception in every country would vary, I bet. If you were to take different countries, Spain, Britain, Germany, France, Greece, how would you characterize the reception you get as a rock band that's coming into town? It's so amazing that it varies so much. We were a really big band in Spain, very popular there, and the audiences were incredibly expressive and gracious. I mean, the the Spanish love American rock music. Okay. The French could not care less. We couldn't get arrested in France. And in 10 years of playing in Europe, the only times I ever played in France were opening for bigger bands. Uh, We never had a single concert there. Wow. And no offers. They couldn't care. But Belgium, Germany, Spain, Netherlands, we were a big band. I was just at the Clarissa Ballroom in Berlin, and there was an American band playing. They were just hard, basic, old-fashioned 1960s rock, and people were going crazy for them. I just felt like Germans love American rock. They really do. And the Germans and the Dutch, people continue to go to rock concerts and love rock music into their 50s and 60s. So it's not just a youth culture rock music there. Now, how are you able to run your business and rely on these strangers in different countries to not rip you off? Because you have to have a certain amount of trust so you get your cut of the pie. Does that vary from country to country? And in some countries, do you feel more confident that you're not getting ripped off and other countries feel more corrupt? Yeah, you never have the ability really to audit your European... You're in and out of there, right? Yeah, and you right. see all these people and you do the arithmetic. I got 3,000 people here. They're each paying 30 bucks. Where's my money? And you have to do that math. In Northern Europe, there was always a sense that they were cultivating us to have a long-term relationship. And so whatever integrity they had when they paid us, there was an element of like, we'd love to see you again in six months, you know, and here's the money. And it never felt 100% like all the money. 
but they weren't just robbing you blind because they wanted to rob you again a little less blind later. Down south, uh, especially in Spain and Italy, there's much more a sense of like, they definitely want you to come back. Right. But they also would like to pay you in cocaine and they would like to pay you in good times. So there was a lot of that. They would just say, hey, we can give you the evening of your life afterwards and hope you enjoy the concert. Yeah. And for me, as the manager of my band, I was like, I would rather not be paid in cocaine. I would rather be paid in, in money. And so we, I, I had some tense moments. Hmm, cocaine or money. Let me think about that and call you back. <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with John Roderick. And John is uh, the lead guitarist and singer of a band called The Long Winters. He's talking about his life on the road in Europe with the band. John's got a podcast called Roderick on the Line. If you want to uh, get more into John's experiences, Roderick, R-O-D-E-R-I-C-K, on the line. When I'm traveling, I want to be mobile. I've got a TV crew, and we want to be able to turn on a dime, and we want to fit into one taxi and so on. When you're traveling, I know that you have an interest in luggage, and you've got to get your guitar on the airplane without it getting broken and so on. What concerns do you have about uh, packing, and what are your tricks for luggage? Well, one of the challenges of being a rock band is you want to look cool every night, too. You know, you can't just wear cargo shorts and a Peruvian shirt. You have to be like a rad-looking rock guy. Hey, my Peruvian <laughs> shirt? What are you going <laughs> to... But you can't also be, like you say, you can't be the guy that shows up for a rock tour with five bags and four guitars. Right. You have to be lean and mean. And so we learned over the course of time how to structure our luggage and how to pack individually we were almost in a competition to see who could bring the least amount. So you of got stuff. your personal bag, and then you got your, your electronic gear, and you'll rely on a lot of stuff from the venues, I would imagine. You do, or you in Europe especially, you can rent gear. But we also have a bag now with our laptop and our phone charger. I mean, we we each have a bunch of electronic gear uh-huh. that is separate from our music gear these days. So you really have to be spare in what you choose to bring. How dangerous is it to check uh, a guitar that you love on an airplane? It's insanely dangerous. During the mid-2000s, airlines became openly hostile to guitars. Yeah. Yeah. And then United Airlines had a sort of famous series of broken guitars that a guy actually wrote a song called United Breaks Guitars, and his video's been watched a million and a half times or something like that. United Breaks Guitars. So so do you you bring it on like a cello and buy an extra seat for it? Do you talk it into the airline upstairs even though it's too big to carry on? Yeah, you have to. Every time I get on an airplane, and and I still do 50 flights a year or more, Mm -hmm. every time I walk down that ramp holding my guitar. You hope you'll get it on. And three or four different airline employees say, you're going to have to check that. And I go, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I, then I, when I see the person, the steward, right inside the door. You hope they like rock. Yeah. And I just, I hold the guitar up and I go, would you, it's my baby. would you help my friend? And 95% of the time they yeah. do. So when you travel around, it sounds like you want your group to have a travel experience also. Why do you even bother with your group to actually take time to appreciate the culture and, and get out and, and not be rock stars, but be travelers and open to the culture. Why is it worth the trouble to you? My bandmates ask me that same question all the time because the path of least resistance is to just travel in a straight line, get to the venue, go down into the basement, log on to the internet, and drift off into a sleepy mind. And early on, I realized if we did that, we'd spend 10 years on the road and nobody would have seen anything. Yeah. Nobody would have any memories at all because every show is kind of the same. A lost opportunity. So I made a point kind of in a maybe a paternalistic way, but I said, well, look, we're in these places. Let's go to the church. Let's see the world's largest ball of twine. And it became part of our band culture. And once it was, then everybody was excited to explore places and to see the cathedral nice. and to go off the beaten path. Yeah. I mean, I know what it's like because I can get into a routine where I'm just going from city to city every day, fly, change hotels, take a rest, you know, get prepped, give the talk, fly to the next city. I did a road trip across the United States, 20 cities in 20 days from Seattle to Tallahassee. And part of the precondition was every time I come to a new town, I asked the people who were in charge of setting me up to have somebody give me a little 45-minute tour of their town. Yeah. Just that, just to be out for an hour with a local person in each town, every town, every, I don't care how mediocre the town seemed. It all had a charm, especially when you had a local person showing you around. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely true. And we would sometimes pull over in the middle of the night just to look at the night stars. Beautiful. Yeah. Now I've been talking to Europeans about, especially in hard scrabble corners of Europe, places like Montenegro, where you get these big international rock stars and bands coming in 
And some bands make a point to appreciate and acknowledge the local culture. Other bands just come in, play, and go. The specific example here in Montenegro, humble little place. People are paying two weeks' wages for a ticket, I would imagine. Here the Rolling Stones. The Stones learned uh, some nice words from the local language. They hung around and played some encores. Madonna flew in, didn't speak a single word of the local Serbo-Croatian or whatever, and uh, she was gone on her helicopter before they stopped clapping for an encore. And it really left a bad taste in the mouth of all those fans that really scrimped and saved to hear that concert. What's your take as far as the cultural, polite, sensitivity obligations of a rock band when they come into a different culture? It's very much like whether or not you take the time to see a place when you travel. I mean, a lot of bands never break that fourth wall at all, and they play the same show no matter where they are, if they're in Los Angeles or if they are on the moon. And other bands are... Tailor it to the local crowd or something. Tailor it or just are present in the moment where they are in the world. So they connect uh, culturally. They'll, they'll learn a few words. They'll have a little fun back and forth with the audience. You almost have to resist doing it. So because, it's, it's, you're inclined to do that. Yeah, when you yeah. land in, in Montenegro and someone says hello to you in Montenegrin, if you're listening at all, you know, the second time it happens, you remember it. That's just the spirit of travel. Why, why do it otherwise? If you're just doing it for money, I guess. But travel is the best. Travel is the best, and you're sharing your music, and you can pick up a little of the culture. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with John Roderick, and uh, he's been uh, spending years with his rock and roll band going around Europe. The band is The Long Winters, and uh, John's got a podcast. It's called Roderick on the Line, R-O-D-E-R-I-C-K, On the Line. Are, are there places that the band looks forward to their free time after dark, after the concert's over, where the cities are really fun? Oh, yeah. Well, Which are the great cities after midnight? We've had the most amazing times in Berlin over the years, so much so that we thought we would, myself included, thought maybe we should move there. A lot of bands do. Yeah, it's a, an incredible town for the arts mm-hmm. and the nightlife and the culture. But we, we've we had wonderful times in Brussels. Uh, Brussels is a surprising gem. You know, you look at Brussels from the outside and you think, oh, it's kind of a mm-hmm. a strange city, two cultures clashing. and Sort of a wannabe Paris that doesn't quite make it. Yeah, wannabe Paris almost, right? And, and a very imperial city, but for a small empire. Yeah. But the food and the bars that are lurking under the surface in Brussels, we've yeah. had tremendous nights there. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, Barcelona and Madrid. I mean. Oh, you, your, your eyes twinkle when you the, say Barcelona. Those towns. I mean, Spain, uh, yeah. uh, just in general. What about Prague? Well, I personally love Prague as a city, as a traveler. Mm-hmm. The band, the challenge was always as soon as you crossed over into what had formerly been Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. there was a very different ethical framework. How so? Uh, It was just much more difficult to get paid in a timely fashion. Uh, And I think some of it was like residual reliance on bureaucratic mechanisms where it was like, well, we can't pay you tonight. We have to have these forms filled out. And then this form has to get filled out. And pretty soon the money would, there there was no recourse to the law. Did you have to ever get in a situation where you feared you wouldn't get your money and you just had to say, you got a crowd out there, they paid, we're not going to play until we get our money? Well, that's kind of like old school rock and roll. That happens. It does, yeah. And there were a couple of, I mean, there have been shows where we just didn't get paid. Right. But at a certain point, you have to, you have to just walk away with a clean conscience. You go, well, what was that? That was $2,000? Yeah. The next (laughs) $2,000 will be the next (laughs) $2,000. John, you've done concert tours in the United States and in Europe. How would you compare being on the road as a rock band in the States compared to in Europe? I mean, the primary differences are that the distances in the United States are so much larger. That's true. Isn't and uh, touring in Europe, you never drive more than four or five hours between concerts, even if you're really, really going mm-hmm. from country to country. And in the United States, sometimes, I mean, if you play a show in Tucson, there isn't another like valid venue until Austin. You have to drive across. You have to. You need do, a Willie Nelson kind of bus to yeah, live in. Yeah, you do. And and there are all kinds of American tours where you routinely drive eight hours yeah, between right. shows, huh. and that does not give you a lot of time to to really live. Even you play and you try and catch some sleep, and then you're just on the road. And the other principal difference is that in Europe. Uh, rock music is considered part of the cultural infrastructure. And so governments provide money to youth organizations, concert venues. They treat bands as a valuable... Part of high culture. Cultural commodity. Not high, but um, legitimate culture. Right. Yeah. And so when you arrive at a venue, they often have a place for you to stay. 
they've absolutely always in Europe made you a, a big meal for the whole band, a big vegetarian spread, or, you know, like they ply you with, with beer and desserts. In America, it's, it's a capitalist economy. And the expectation is that you get yourself to the venue and you are responsible for yourself. I mean, they, the backstage area will have some beer and some snacks, but you house yourself and it's all meant to be contained in the check that you get at the end of the night. So in America, it's much more you play and in exchange for that, you get money. It's a business transaction. Yeah. And in Europe, it's much more of a of an exchange. Cultural of, exchange. A, a lot of it. And then With there's money. money on top of it. Of course. But so those differences make it very different to travel in America. But rock bands have a tendency to be kind of introverted people. And a lot of bands prefer the American style because there's not that expectation that you're going to be chummy. So you just get your Subway sandwich and sit in the hotel room and go yeah. to the concert hall when it's time to go. It's the Madonna model. You fly in on a helicopter, you play your show, and then you fly out of there and count your money. Yeah. All right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been rocking out with John Roderick right now. We're uh, traveling with the band around Europe. John's podcast is Roderick on the Line, R-O-D-E-R-I-C-K, on the line. And John, I wish we could talk more. We're out of time. But let's go out with a, a song that particularly resonates with uh, your, your fans in Spain, because I know they really like your band. What, what would be a good one? Set it up for it, and let's have some of your music. There's a song called Blue Diamonds, which was very popular in Spain. And then uh, one time we arrived in Spain and realized that they were using that song in a Ford commercial. Without uh, asking you. And no one had checked it out with us. And that represented, I think, a pretty sizable bag of money that went somewhere. It never went to me. But we were driving around Spain and, and showing up to venues, and there are tons and tons of people at the shows, and uh, everybody had heard the song. They all knew the song. From the television commercial that was advertising the Ford Focus or something. What's, let's hear the song. What's it called It's again? called Blue Diamonds. Blue Diamond. Thanks, John, for being with us, and uh, happy travels and good music on the road. Thank you, Rick. You'll find a link to the Long Winters website in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Up next, we'll learn why even something as big as the Pacific Ocean needs a little tender loving care. We'll hear why marine biologists are excited about a recently enacted bill that extends environmental protection into an area of the Pacific that's three times the size of California. Find out what progress is being made in protecting the oceans next on Travel with Rick Steves. Imagine a hands-off zone three times bigger than California in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. In September 2014, President Obama signed into law the Pacific Remote Islands Marine National Monument. It covers nearly half a million square miles of islands, reefs, and ocean to the west and south of the Hawaiian Islands. And it expands the areas in which international commercial fishing and mining practices are prohibited. We're joined now on Travel with Rick Steves by Dr. Elliot Norris, He's the chief scientist for the Marine Conservation Institute, which he founded in 1996 to give scientific researchers a voice in public policy. And on the phone is Lance Morgan, the current president of the organization. They're here to tell us why they fought so hard for this designation and what they expect it to accomplish. Gentlemen, welcome. It's good to be here, Rick. Nice to be with you. This sounds like, let me put it this way, it sounds like you worked very hard on this, and this is very far away, and a lot of people would kind of wonder, so what? So, so tell me, why was this necessary, and what will it accomplish? What we've been trying to accomplish is winning protection for the ocean's best places to save marine life all around the world. So this is 2% of the ocean, is that what I understand? Well, this is a very big chunk of a little over 2% of the ocean that is now protected. Of that, how much of it is land? Very small fraction of it is land. <laughs> very small. These are very small atolls. None of them have ever been permanently inhabited until recently. 
on Wake Island, we maintain a small military base. And on Palmyra Atoll, we have a small research field station, which has about 10 people. But up until really the last 100 years, no one ever lived there, and it was only brief trips to the islands. There's no permanent water or anything on these islands. Well, so the real thing is the, uh, the habitat for fish and, and marine life. Fish and seabirds and sea turtles and uh, marine mammals, yes. What was the threat? Why was this done? Well, the, these places, these islands, are tiny little specks in the middle of a big piece of ocean, and the organisms that live on the islands, the seabirds and things, need to feed in the surrounding waters. And the biggest threat to them was commercial fishing. They need the little fish that big fish drive up to the surface. Seabirds can't dive very deep, right? so they need their food to come to them. And when we eliminate those big fish, the little fish don't have to come to the surface. The seabirds go hungry. Lance, do you find that industry understands the the rationale for this, or did you have opposition for this protected area? Yes, of course. There's always, uh, when you're saying to an industry that you don't want them to be doing their business in this uh, area anymore, there's always some pushback. But this has been an area that really has not been a significant focus of uh, the fishing industry, and even the, the U.S. fishermen who were there were only getting a small percentage of their catch out of the area. And it was a long distance, over a, a thousand miles from Honolulu, so a very expensive place to get to in order to fish. But also, this is somewhat of a two-part story. When we first started working on this area, the largest motivation was the fact that it contained fairly pristine or near-pristine coral reefs by modern-day Standard. So when we hear about coral reefs declining in so many areas of the world, these remote areas were still relatively healthy. They had all of the species that you would normally think of as being part of a healthy coral reef. And by that, I mean it had things like large sharks, which are mostly missing from coral reefs in many parts of the world. And as a result, with the ecosystem intact from the top predators, the sharks and the big fishes, all the way down to the corals and the, and the small fishes, it really was very eye-opening example of what a healthy reef looked like in a world in which we've seen a a long-term deterioration of coral reefs, and many of us don't necessarily know what a good reef or healthy reef would look like. So we were able to, with President George Bush, have him initially designate the area, but only an area relatively small around the islands. And as we looked at the area more, we recognized that the seabirds were such a critical part to these islands. I mean, these are islands that really are seabird nurseries, and resting areas. And as we looked at those patterns of seabirds leaving the islands and foraging offshore, we realized like, they go well beyond the, the original area that was protected, sometimes even well beyond the extent of the U.S.'s 200-mile zone. And so we put together a case for protecting an even wider area, and that is what has gotten us to this world's largest protected area. So, Elliot, Lance was talking about how President Bush sort of initiated this with a, a less far-reaching uh, protected area. This is an expansion on that. Would President Bush see the wisdom of this, do you think, and support the broader application of his idea? Well, from everything I've heard, President Bush and Mrs. Bush really, really care about seabirds, and they wanted to see this place protected. And there were some compromises that had to be made. President Obama expanded on what President Bush did. What kind of compromises? There was commercial fishing happening in places where these birds were foraging for their food. Okay, now, you know, this whole thing, it sounds like something uh, an environmentalist can embrace, a tree hugger could hug. Mm -hmm. Uh, But can you really make a case to people that just care about jobs and industry? Is it just a matter of educating to say that this may be tough love, but this is smart and in your financial interest? And once people get that, is everybody on board? Well, I don't know if it's in their financial interest, but what I find is that people in industry breathe. People in industry want to have healthy oceans. Okay, so you cannot too. frame this just to protect fishing in the long term. It would help to protect fishing in the long term because if there are places where fish aren't caught, they build up their populations. I mean, that's how I heard seed it. the surrounding waters yeah, with fish. Yeah, when Dr. Morgan was talking, that's how, how I heard it. Right. Uh, this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Dr. Elliot Norse and Dr. Lance Morgan. They're from the Marine Conservation Institute, and they're telling us about a recently expanded 
U.S. protection zone. It's now the largest protected area of land or sea anywhere in the world, and it's designated to prohibit commercial fishing and mining in an area around some remote atolls south and west of Hawaii. You can learn more about their work online at marine-conservation.org. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Peter's calling in from Florida. Peter, thanks for your call. Oh, thank, thank you, Rick Steve. I would like to ask the question, how can we convince someone from, say, the Midwest or somewhere in the middle of, of America that this protection zone would benefit them? And how can we do it without being preachy or making it based on politics? Well, I think what is really interesting about that is this actually has been a, a bipartisan protected area, maybe the only one we know of. It was started by President George Bush with the initial designation in 2009, and then President Obama expanded it again in 2014. I think because they both understood the same thing. In, in a global ocean in which we've seen a steady decline globally in the amount of fish we can take out of the ocean, we know we have reached the limits of what the ocean can provide for us. And so protecting some of these places just like Teddy Roosevelt probably looked to Yellowstone and people thought, why the heck are you worried about something way out west mm -hmm. at this point mm -hmm. in time? You know, they have the foresight to really understand that we need to protect these places that are still relatively healthy against the backdrop of really just slow erosion around the globe of marine life, marine biodiversity, fisheries, the benefits that oceans provide for people. And so this very large area, I think, is a very hopeful sign that, you know, politicians do understand the need to protect our oceans. Yeah, we love the marine biodiversity out there, and we want to protect it, and we want it to be there for our kids. But we're losing the benefits of healthy oceans mm -hmm. for industry and things like a healthy climate and oxygen that we all need to survive. Does that make sense, Peter? That makes sense. But how can we convince maybe someone from the Midwest or someone not near the ocean that this is important for all of us? Dr. Norris, that's interesting. If somebody's never seen the ocean, why does it matter to them? Well, that's really important. But we are citizens of our planet. And I'm in a place where people understand that seeing other parts of the world and understanding the connections among people is really important. Well, all of the world's people, whether they live on the shore or far from the oceans depend on the services that healthy oceans provide. Half of the oxygen we breathe comes from the sea. Now, if you don't mind skipping every other breath, okay, <laughs> we don't have to worry so much. But I want a healthy climate. I want to be able to breathe. I want my world to be viable. And it's not just people. Yeah. It's the living things that keep us alive. So that interconnectedness really is the enlightenment of our age when we can see that. I don't care if you can see the ocean or not. I don't care if you can see this atoll in the middle of the Pacific or yeah. not. We are interconnected. When we lose something there, it is connected. Yes. Peter, thanks for your call. Uh, you're welcome. I know. I read in the uh, material, Dr. Norris, about the mining dimension to this. It seems obvious there'd be fishing concerns. What are the mining concerns? Well, in the Pacific Ocean, there are some places that have things that could be valuable in the future if they, if ah. the economics ever work out. There are manganese nodules that may be useful. There are cobalt crusts in some places in the Pacific. So right now there's not mining going on. No. But when it becomes uh, economic and, and viable, yes. there's potential there, and it is protected where they won't be able to get those minerals because uh, it's protected. Yes, yes. But again, an area three times the size of California sounds colossal for those of us who live in smaller places. <laughs> in Connecticut. In Connecticut, <laughs> yes, or in Rhode Island. But to be perfectly honest, the oceans are really, really There's a lot big. more out there. There's a lot more out there, and this doesn't mean we are going to have a minerals crisis. You talk about a recovery zone. If you have a little safe haven, a little critical area of protected habitat, mm -hmm. that gives a, a chance for embattled species to have a place to breed. Is, is that the idea? That is exactly the idea. And we, Lance and I have been working to develop a global ocean refuge system mm. of which we suspect Pacific remote islands would be a keystone part. But we need to protect places all around the world for their marine life. 
So is there a critical mass required for a recovery zone to function? Is 2% enough? That's a great question, and scientists have been debating about this for a while, and we think that if we were to protect 20 to 30% of the ocean... You could have your way with the rest of it. Well, (laughs) I can't say have our way with the rest of it. If we're careful with the rest of it and we protect that 20 to 30%, we are going to have healthy oceans. So you guys are in favor of sustainability. I, I, I'm embarrassed to say it, but yeah, okay. I admit, <laughs> I admit. Dr. Morgan, we own these atolls, right? Does that mean we can just grab all the land and water within 500 miles of each of them? How, how does that work from an international point of view? Good question. So there is the Law of the Sea Convention, and that entitles nations to claim all of the economic benefits and fisheries and minerals, et cetera, out to 200 nautical miles, or when you intersect with another nation within that zone, you you negotiate a treaty as to whose economic zone that is. So we originally, interestingly enough, took these atolls into U.S. position because they had a lot of bird poop on them. Um, And that bird poop, or guano, is quite rich in nitrogen. And it turned out back in the mid-1800s, we really needed nitrogen to help us make different types of explosives. And so we basically passed a law that said, for anybody who wants to go out there and mine the guano, we will protect you under the the flag of the United States. And these areas across the middle of the Central Pacific then became territories of the U.S. So they've always been federally held areas. They're territories of the U.S. And yes, we, under international treaty, do have the rights to manage these areas as we choose to. Okay, and are other other countries upset with this law, or is everybody saying this is our right? I mean, the establishment of the Pacific Remote Islands Marine National Monument. is that? Yes. What's interesting is President Bush, after the original designation of 2006, has kicked off something of a large MPA race in which other nations as well have stepped in to protect their overseas territories. So the United Kingdom has done this. Australia, South Africa, France is looking into doing it. So mm-hmm. it actually has been a good example for the world that where we can and where we have the opportunity to protect these remote areas and really let marine life come to dominate those areas again in a more natural setting. It's, it's been a, a wonderful trend over the last decade. With something like this, it sounds like we can work together between nations and between uh, parties here in our country. The president of the Marine Conservation Institute, Lance Morgan, is on the phone with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves from his base in California. And their chief scientist, Elliot Norris, is with us in the studio to explain why marine protected areas and sanctuaries are crucial to the health of the planet and to celebrate the recent designation of the Pacific Remote Islands National Monument. There's more about their work on behalf of healthy marine habitats online at marine-conservation.org. Dr. Norris, global warming, how does that factor in and and the rising sea level and so on? Is this any concern with this whole initiative? Well, it factors in in some really serious ways. One is that these islands are not only small, but they're low. And so it doesn't take a lot of rising sea level to inundate them completely. And that's a problem. But it's more than that. The corals that live around these islands are really sensitive to temperature. And when temperatures rise above a certain point, which is just a little bit above where they live, they start bleaching. They start getting rid of the little cells, that algal cells that live in them. And if they keep bleaching, they die of starvation. That's not good. That has a sort of domino effect. Oh, of course. That that is really hard to underestimate. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to overestimate. (laughs) Hard to overestimate. If you cut down the trees in the forest, the wildlife in the forest have real problems. And that's exactly the same that happens with coral reefs. So, Dr. Norris, I, I got the sense from talking to you and Dr. Morgan that this is, for you, sort of the first act. What do you envision from here? Is this a springboard to something bigger? Or is it mission accomplished? Oh, I wish we could say it's mission accomplished. But the mission won't be accomplished until we have protected enough safe places in every geographic region of the world to save marine life. To have these recovery zones. Yes, we need to have industry. We need to feed Mm -hmm. the planet with fish, and we need to mine all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. But if we're not sustainable, we're all in the same boat, and it's going down. Your notion is this concept of recovery zones. 
establish recovery zones, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. this is a pretty historic step in that direction. This was a history-making step. Think of it. President Obama has protected more of the Earth's surface than anybody in history. That is big stuff. Can this be rolled back if somebody took his position and didn't agree with this? I'm sure there are people who would like for that to happen, but I don't think the American people would put up with it. Visiting national parks is one of the things that Americans love. So there's these notions, these concepts that Mm -hmm. we have to get, the interconnectivity of Mm -hmm. things, even if you can't see the ocean, it matters to Mm -hmm. you, and that, yes, protecting stuff on the land is important, equally protecting Mm -hmm. stuff Mm -hmm. under the water is important. Yep. You know, what you don't know can hurt you. Out of sight, maybe out of mind, but you're still connected with what happens in the oceans around Antarctica or the Pacific Remote Islands or the Baltic Sea. Dr. Morgan, just to wrap up our conversation, take us on a boat ride in this new protected zone and describe an image that you would show us that would make us feel really good about this new protected zone that President Obama has signed into law. Yeah, one of the most fascinating things to me about approaching one of these atolls from the sea is that even from a long distance away, you get a sense that there's something there even before you can see the atoll because there's this big bird pile above the island. And what this is is the nesting and breeding birds on these islands are very evident from a long, long ways away, and they look like a big black swarm up over the island. There's millions of seabirds that live out there. And so you can find the island by first by just seeing this cloud of seabirds, and uh-huh. as you get closer and closer, then you start to recognize that that cloud really is thousands of seabirds around these islands and as you get in close of course and, and pass through the fringing coral reefs and into the lagoons you can you know you just see these very beautiful island atolls there wow dr lance morgan dr elliot norris you guys have worked very hard on this i can just feel the pride you have in this and the excitement you have and best wishes as you push this initiative forward thank you so much rick yes we really appreciate the time with you today Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to ABC Sydney for their help this week. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Italy and beyond, one small group at a time. This year, we're featuring tours of Venice, Florence, and Rome, the heart of Italy, Village Italy, South Italy, and Sicily. For a free catalogue and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.